This is an ABC podcast. Judy Cotton is an Australian artist who's lived in the US since 1971. In the many years that Judy has made a life in America with her son and her husband and her art practice, her heart has also been here on the other side of the world, in the continent that formed her. In its water and birds, its trees and its light, and of course, its people. For Judy, that's her family, including her father, the former Liberal Minister and Ambassador Sir Robert Cotton, and her mother Eve. Eve Cotton was a woman who approached her role as a politician's wife with the same high drive for perfectionism that she brought to her other responsibilities as a champion sheep breeder, exacting homemaker, and mother to Judy and her sister and brother. In forging her own path, Judy's adventures have included drawing in the Korean demilitarised zone, living as a single mum in Tokyo in the early 1970s, and braving the macho New York art scene. Her first book is a surprising and exquisitely written memoir called Swimming Home. Hi, Judy. Hi, Sarah. How are you? You're an internationally recognised artist, Judy, you know, with work held in the National Gallery of Australia and the Met in New York. Tell me about an early painting venture of yours involving your little brother and a flannel boiler suit. Well, I remember when I was four, it was just post-World War II, and my mother had managed to get some really good grey flannel cloth. And she had boiler suits made for us that mimicked Winston Churchill's because he was so much Australia's hero at the times. And she dressed us because we were going to a tea party. So he was two and I was four. And while she got ready, I said to him, come with me. So I took him to uh, the tank stand where the house paint was stored. And the house was painted white with a dark blue trim. So bear in mind that in those years, that was oil paint. So I remember to this day lifting the skin of paint off the top, dipping the brush in, and painting my lovely patient two-year-old brother (laughs) with the white house paint. I remember matting his hair down. I remember how the brush went. I remember twirling that brush in his ear. (laughs) How on earth did my mother get us clean again? You had to pretty much have bathe this in turpentine, right? But <laughs> that was my memory of learning to paint. And after that, we painted, I painted on anything. Did you get in trouble for that? Judy? Of course. Do you remember? I got in terrific trouble, but I didn't care. I think one of the things about Australian kids or Australian children can be this immense sense of daring and freedom. And, you know, you're going to go there. And I I think I realized writing the book is just how obstinate and difficult a little child I was. I was going to go there and I didn't care what you did. I used to go to the back farm and find cow skulls. I thought this was just wonderful. And I would put red cellophane over their eyes and then I would put a flashlight inside the cow skull and I would hide it under my bed. And then when my mother came to say goodnight, I have to say she played along beautifully with this, I would say, oh, mom, I dropped my handkerchief. I think there's something under the bed. I don't know what it is. And she would bend down and say, oh, my God. (laughs) You know, very exciting, lots of fun. And, you know, the interesting thing is that passion for skeletal forms and animal forms has stayed with me. I am still painting animal forms 
One of my more recent series was the Nature Mort series, which people find sort of horrifying. But, you know, there is true beauty in animal forms. This uh, scaring of your mother and painting of your little brother happened in Oberon on the, the west side of the Blue Mountains. But you were born in Broken Hill, which is where your parents were from. What were things like at home for your mum when she was growing up? I think it was tough. They didn't have a lot of money. What money her father made or had inherited, he drank away because he was an alcoholic. And so for my mother, I think when he came home drunk, he would actually beat my grandmother and my mother's older sister, beautiful Jean, but he never beat my mother and he would hide chocolate under her pillow. So she had time for him in the way that the others didn't. But I think it's something those early years with an alcoholic father and hiding from him at night turned her into the reserved person that she became, someone so determined to achieve, to escape, to remove herself from this, to rise past it. And she did. How did she compare to her older sister, the, the woman you just referred to as beautiful? Ah, there was Jean. the beautiful Jean of the easy virtue. Everybody said Jean was the more beautiful one. Jean was beautiful. But looking at the pictures now, I realized my mother was beautiful too, but she didn't believe it. She was shy. She never looked as good as she should have. She did, but she didn't believe it. What brought your mother to Sydney when she was 14? So when she was 14, she had shown a distinct talent for the piano. And her uh, great aunt, that family was wealthy and paid for my mother to go to Sydney. And I remember she slept on an outside veranda upstairs at Kirribilli. And she showed me her aunt's house years ago. And she studied music at the conservatorium. And she was very studious and very determined and actually did so well that she reached, finally, concert-level performance, but married instead. Then chose not to play the piano again because she felt she would never be as good as she should have been. And that was one determined woman. (laughs) If you were not as brilliant as you could possibly be, then she was not going to do it. Before she gave up uh, her playing, she did make a name for herself back in in Broken Hill. How did she become well-known for her piano playing? Well, when she came back to Broken Hill, she joined the local radio station. I've forgotten what it was called, but she became Cousin Eve. And so she would play, and I gather there was someone who bubbled remarks through a piece of balloon So she would actually, when she walked down the street in Broken Hill, be signing autographs as Cousin Eve. So she had, what she had was a distinct poise and a sort of sense of privacy, beautiful but withholding. And I think she kept that sense of personal privacy her entire life. It was this musical, potential musical career that she, as you say, walked away from when she married your father when she was 20. Where did they first meet your mum and dad? So they met in Broken Hill at her fourth birthday party, and she remembers that she threw her red jelly at him. (laughs) I think they were, I say, marking him for life. And I think they lived not so far away from each other in Broken Hill. But then they did not meet again. 
until she was 17, and my dad, walking down the street, saw her and said to his friend, Don McGrath, lovely guy, oh, ask her if she'll go to the pictures with me. And Don said, ask her yourself. And so he did. And from then on, they were together. From the time that she was 17 and he was 19, they were together. I believe they went through 65 years of married life together. And they were each other's most committed partner through everything. So when my brother, years later, broke his shoulder at boarding school, my mother was called to come and pick him up. And the very first thing she said to him when he came out with his shoulder and God knows what, is understand this, none of you three will ever matter to me the way your father does. So she had the ability to say it. Now, at the time, I thought that was very cold. In retrospect, I love it. I mean, imagine being able to just say it. And she did. They were living in Broken Hill when when they decided to marry. Where did they head for their honeymoon? They went to Sri Lanka, to Colombo. And I include in the book a few passages from my father's written memoirs where he describes what it was like driving in the Paradise Gardens in Colombo at midnight and how exotic and gorgeous it was. And they had, they saw tea plantations. They went into the mountains. I think Sri Lanka then was not in a period of great trouble, though God knows I could be wrong. They found it ravishing. And when they finished their honeymoon, as we all understood it as children, they had 10 shillings left over. That's all they had. And they shared a passiona. Do you remember passionas? Do. do they still make passionas? I'm not sure they do, but I think that's a, if you're going to go out, go out in style with a the passiona. There you go. So it, that seems such a kind of almost incongruously romantic or hedonistic they thing stayed for romantic, them to do. Or at least my father did. He was, I think, taken with my mother for the whole of his life. And, and she knew it. But she was incredibly, she was smart, she was in charge, even though he had such a distinguished career. In some ways, it's almost like she understood people better and the roots through things almost better than he did. And so they had an incredible working relationship. What did your mother bring back with her from Colombo that used to entrance you and your sister? Oh, my God, we were in love with this, my sister and I. My mother had a dress tailored for her in Colombo, and we used to take it out of the closet and think, oh, my God, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It was doubled creamy white tulle with a black velvet bodice and this long, beautiful skirt. Underneath, of course, in those days, women wore petticoat. It was a broderie anglaise petticoat with black ribbon threaded through the slots, And we thought this was the most exquisite, most glamorous thing you could ever possibly see. And I believe to this day it was. What happened to that dress? Do you know, Judy? Oh, God, I don't know. (laughs) If I had it today, imagine what fun we would have with it. (laughs) Tell me what your mother was in the midst of doing when she discovered she was pregnant with you. My mother had volunteered for the war effort because 1941... Um, We're waiting for Australia to be taken by forces from the Northern Hemisphere. And she was learning to take a truck apart and to drive a truck. And she passed out under the truck. 
and found out she was pregnant with me. As a, as a little girl, your family moved to Oberon where your dad was running a sawmill first for the war effort and then as a, as a business enterprise. How did you discover that you were to be sent to boarding school? Well, the truth is we did not discover it. So what happened is my sister was born with a lazy eye. And in those days, what did you do about that? Apparently, my parents made a decision that they were going to take my sister for surgery. We lived in Oberon, and 60 miles away at Orange, there was a boarding school for country children called Onslow House. And I remember being dressed with my sister in a brown tunic and hat and gloves and socks and being driven to Orange 60 miles away through that fine, silty dust which were the dirt surface roads then, to find to our surprise we were going to be left at this boarding school. It was not explained to us. We were just left there. I was not yet five and my sister not quite seven. And during the two years that we were there, um, she had eye exercises and eventually she went for surgery. And I was the youngest in the school And so on some level, I was spoiled by the other children and by the, I remember the headmistress's beautiful daughter, Saturday morning used to be hair washing day, and she would hold us back over the laundry tubs and wash our hair and sing, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. (laughs) I thought it was wonderful. (laughs) I mean, obviously there were rewards for being there, but being four is so, seems so extraordinarily young to be sent away. How homesick were you? Very homesick, but what's the point? You can be homesick, but it isn't going to change anything. You're still going to be there, so you have to make your way. And that's pretty much true for everybody's life, isn't it? You make your way because what's the choice? You stand still or you make your way. So you go forward through whatever is life that is good there. And I remember the headmistress's daughter used to lie on Saturday afternoons. She would lie out in the back gardens and we would have Saturday afternoons off. And she would put tanning on her legs. And when she went out at night, she would draw a line up the back of her legs with an eyebrow pencil to simulate stockings because in the war years, you know, you couldn't afford stockings. And we were extremely enchanted with her. We thought she was the most, the essence of glamour with her painted fingernails and toes and the line drawn up her, the back of her legs and I guess eyebrows too. <laughs> when you came back, you and your sister to Oberon and went to the local school there, was that a better fit for you? In, in- oh God, I loved it. It was wonderful. We had this wonderful teacher called Jeff Spinney, and we were all in a one-room schoolroom with one of those wood stoves in the middle where you toasted your sandwiches at lunch. And Jeff Spinney always wore a suit, a shirt, and a tie. And I remember him saying to, uh, reciting to us, do you remember an inn, Miranda? Do you remember an inn? And the fleas that tease in the high Pyrenees and the wine that tasted of tar. And I remember it because of the yearning in his voice. You want, I know that he wanted to go to Europe. And I tried researching him years later to find out, did Jeff Spinney ever get to Europe? I hope he got to Europe. He was made for Europe. 
you and and your brother in particular spent a lot of time with your cousin Tony who lived in Oberon. What memories do you have of being on the farm? Oh, Tony was our beloved cousin. He was one year younger than me, one year older than my brother. And we were just mates. We were just tight from the beginning. He lived about three houses down when we still lived in Oberon. And one of the joys of being a girl then when you've got a brother and a cousin we would go out the door after breakfast and we would not be back till dinner. And nobody asked, where are the children? We had a bull that we loved to tease. So my brother and Tony and I would drive into the bull's paddock. My brother would drive the tractor and Tony and I would be on the trailer behind hanging on for dear life. Then we would climb up the pea vine stack and throw sticks at the bull until he was just crazed with rage at which point we would jump down, jump on the back of the tractor trailer. My brother would drive like hell and we would just get out the gates before the bull reached us. <laughs> Fortunately, it was kind of a slow bull. A bit surprised you've made it to adulthood hearing some of yes, these stories. Yes, I know. We were demons. Uh, but I mean, it was enormous stricture when I was at boarding school. We went to boarding school again after the Oberon school. So you had extreme stricture at boarding school. And then when you were home at the farm, extreme freedom. And that polarity has been an interesting point of my life, but that freedom taught me to seek freedom. What business did your mum begin in Oberon? She decided she would raise stud sheep. And she looked up the stud books and she chose Hampshire Down because, honestly, they were the best looking (laughs) and they were the prettiest. And we had two rams in our backyard. One was called George and one was called Cheeky. And we used to love to push down on their foreheads until they would chase us. And then we had a ladder propped up against the clothesline and we would race up the ladder so they couldn't actually butt us. But they would wait by the back gate for us to come home from school. So after we moved from the little country town of Oberon, my dad had bought a farm out four miles from Oberon, the Shooters Hill Road. And my mom then began her start there. And I remember the night that the first of the pregnant ewes arrived. It was snowing. We had built a barricade for them in a front paddock with huge bales of hay because it was cold. And I remember the truck pulling in off the drive and getting stuck in the mud. And then watching as these mysterious almost gray creatures came trembling down the ramp and into our paddock. That night was the night I saw my mother the most thrilled in her life, the night those pregnant ewes came down the ramp. And she was a spectacular breeder. She kept the books with utter precision. She understood when she looked at the sheep which ewe was going to cross with which ram and produce the best result. She kept exquisite stud books kind of like musical notes. And she became the largest breeder of Hampshire Downs in the Southern Hemisphere and won many prizes at the Royal Sydney Easter Show. How did she behave towards them? You know, she could be quite a strict, exacting mother. What was she like to her sheep? Oh, she loved her sheep. She used to go down in the afternoons with bread and she would call out to the paddock, come on, my dears, come on, my dears. And the sheep would come streaming up to her, eating bread out of her hands as she scratched their ears. In fact, we would all do it with her. But she loved them. They were her dears. There's no question about it. 
That was the period of her life, I think, when she was happiest. God knows she went on to the White House and to this glamorous residence in Washington, D.C., but she would go up to the lambing sheds at night at 11 at night and come back having, I mean, the maiden Hampshire Down use would have unusually long-legged lambs, which would mean my mother would have to put her hands up the birth canal and turn the lambs so that they could come out successfully. Otherwise, they, they got blocked. And she would come back at midnight covered in afterbirth, but her face radiant from the whole struggle. In these years, she was also supporting your father, who was starting to build his political career. He ran against Ben Chifley, the the Labour Prime Minister. How did that go? Well, he was asked, he thought about whether he was going to become Liberal or Labour. He's a middle-of-the-road man, and he decided he was against nationalising the banks. So then he was asked to run against Chifley in his home district of Macquarie, which Oberon Bathurst covered. And they said to him, you won't win, but run against Chifley so hard that he is forced back to campaign in Macquarie. And that was true. They ran so hard, they visited everywhere and we went with them. And we used to paste on the rises of steps watch your step, vote cotton, which we thought was hilarious. (laughs) And they knocked on doors everywhere, and they did do brilliantly. They lost, but they did so well that my dad and Chifley became friends because that was political life in Australia in those days. You were friends across the aisle. Those were the people that you had dinner with. And when Ben Chifley, that most beloved of Australian prime ministers, was dying of cancer, One of the people he asked to see was my dad, and he asked him to join the Labour Party, and Dad said, I've thought hard about it, but no. After losing to Chifley, he did go on to um, much uh, more success after that. What do you think made people like him as a politician? He was very charismatic, my dad, and he remembered everybody's name. It was astounding. I remember when he started going out for political, like I think I was nine, And I was practicing my politician's handshake and smile, but I never did get the most important aspect is you remember who those people are and you know their stories. He had a phenomenal memory for people and their faces. He was immensely charming to be with, easy to be with. I I don't mean charming in a smarmy way. I mean in a good, steady way. As you were coming into your teens and early adulthood, Judy, did you and he agree on politics? Nothing. We agreed on absolutely nothing. Not what I should do, not where I should go. I didn't approve of any of his politics. And, of course, as we later on started moving towards the Vietnam War, I kept yelling at him, I would be burning my draft card right now. What are you even doing? So we um, disagreed with one another politically. And altogether, I mean, I was not someone who was going to yield to authority. And he was an authoritarian male in the years, 40s, 50s, 60s, when authoritarian males held sway. And he was a very successful man. He was used to winning in every situation. But I was also his daughter. I was going to win in every situation too. So we butted heads big time. What did he think about 
your desire to go to art school after finishing high oh, school? Oh, he totally disagreed with it. He said there are a bunch of libertines and um, louche and they would spend their time trying to seduce me. And he was correct, of course. <laughs> but um, And so there was no way I was going to get to art school. So he managed to slot me into women's college at Sydney University, where I spent the year partying, having an absolutely great time, reading murder mysteries. I remember eating <laughs> apple strudel and cream at Manning Coffee House and trying to learn to smoke with a telescoping cigarette holder. I did not take notes in my lectures. and often skipped lectures. And in my exams, I wrote three-hour essays to the examiners of what I thought was wrong with their education system. How did that play out for your results? Mm, not well. <laughs> I think I got what they was called a gentleman's pass in those days. <laughs> but I, I was determined to go to art school, and I had slipped out of women's college at night to go to life drawing classes. I mean, that was what I was and who I was going to become. And the discipline of life drawing was something that has stayed with me forever. And so I dropped out and I went to work at St. Vincent's Hospital for the dean of the medical school. And, of course, you wear a white uniform, and he would forget that I wasn't one of his students. And he would say, come with me, and we would go on rounds around the hospital. And then he found out that I was an artist, and so I was sent into the cancer lab, and I would draw slides of all the different cancers and color them in. And the other thing I was supposed to do was to deal with the medical students. And in those days, I swear to God, they were all males. And talk about sexually harassing me. It was nonstop. And then finally, it became time for their final exams. And I was the person, supervisor, I was the supervisor. So I'm sitting on this raised dais and a supervisor's desk. And they say, Miss Cotton, may I be excused to go to the bathroom? And I say, certainly, you may be excused, but you may not return. So that was my revenge. They were planning to look up the answers when they were out at the bathroom. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Judy, how did you end up in South Korea in 1968? So I'm married in 1961. I married my first husband, who then became an Australian diplomat. And our first posting was to New Zealand. So my only experience outside Australia was New Zealand, which is not that different from <laughs> Australia, let me tell you. So we came back to Australia and we were posted to Seoul, South Korea. Well, it was staggering. I mean, it was 1968. It was the height of the Cold War. And it was like stepping back into the 14th century. I, I could not believe my eyes that I would land in a country where things were so medieval still, such tragic circumstances, people unable to stand upright because they'd been working so much in the rice fields, so little money, such savagery. And yet, if someone came to you in the street and asked for money, someone else would grab them and say no. They were extremely proud people. But here I am from a little white bread Australia. I've never been anywhere other than New Zealand. 
I have no idea what a different culture is or how strong and private that culture is or how in many ways amazing. And I was determined, it's 1968, I'm determined that if European culture is miniskirts and free love, we're not going to have the free love, but I'm definitely going to have the miniskirts. I'm going to bring the miniskirts to South Korea. <laughs> and um, so there I would sit at cocktail receptions with my ankles crossed so no one could see further than my thighs. And I remember one cabinet minister, a Korean cabinet minister, explaining politely to me that European women had no function, that prostitutes had a function, but European women were good for nothing. Hmm. What was expected of you as a diplomat's wife? I was expected to go to coffee mornings with the other wives and roll bandages. I don't know why. So, of course, I'm not going to do that. So I, I worked as um, I worked for a dress designer, Julia Lee, who was married to the last prince of South Korea, and he was an absolutely lovely, gentle soul. And we would go have dinner in this amazing rundown wooden palace, and you would be sitting on cushions in the moon room, and there would be a round window through which the moon would be showing at that time. And then I remember also being phoned up one day by a famous Korean artist. I don't know why he got my phone number, but he did, as I was an artist and I was also showing and painting there. And he called me up and he said, I believe you will meet me at this exhibition. And I said, thank you so much, but I have another engagement. And this went on for half an hour. And I finally realized, oh, I'm definitely going to meet this artist at this exhibition. Otherwise, he's never going to get off the phone. So I met him at the exhibition. He's a charming, distinguished artist. He walked me around the exhibition, and then he said, I believe you will write about this exhibition for the Korea Times. And I thought, I have no idea why you would say that. The next day, the Korea Times called me up and made me their art critic. So that was how things happened. So then I became the art critic for the Korea Times, and I worked as a dress designer. What happened when you tried learning Taekwondo, Judy? Oh, my God. So, yes, you know, you're going to try to embrace the culture. You're going to eat kimchi. I mean, oh, my gosh, the kimchi there is different from kimchi anywhere else, let me tell it's you. Very the garlic you, quotient Judy. is it's extraordinary. very good for you, kimchi. Yeah, I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> so I decide I'm going to learn taekwondo. So the instructor, being a Korean male, said to me one day, you woman, you number 10. I'm man. I'm number one. And I was so furious with him that I did the required chest kick without bawling my toes. I kicked him so hard in the chest, I broke my toe. And we both knew I had broken my toe, and we both continued the lesson. Judy. When you break your toe, yeah, what the heck? I'm not, I'm my broken toe told him, you man, you number 10. I woman, I number one. <laughs> Why did an American general take you into the demilitarized zone, this no man's land oh, separating my gosh. North um, and South Korea? Well, the Americans in South Korea lived in a compound, which was kind of like a small fake America. It was like when you step back in there, it was like stepping into America. And the American military and the generals pretty much could do whatever they wanted in South Korea. I have no idea why he decided I should draw this for him but he decided I should draw Freedom House for him, which was in the middle of the DMZ. 
So I was picked up by a military convoy and driven to the demilitarized zone, where I stood in the middle of the demilitarized zone, drawing Freedom House, surrounded by four soldiers with their rifles pointed at the North Koreans, while the North Koreans watched me through binoculars. And I thought, well, this is strange. The other, the other thing is that the demilitarized zone showed you what Korea was like when it was not picked clean for fuel, for fires, for food, for cooking. It was lush. It was gorgeous. There were pheasants everywhere. And you thought, oh, if the land were not picked clean for out of hunger, this is what it would be like. So that was one of the strange experiences. At Christmas time in, in 1968, in deep winter in Seoul, you were painting in your studio when you had a kind of a vision. What did you see? Well, whether you believe it or not, there have been times in my life when I have had second sight, when you get a vision of whether someone is going to live or die. And it's not something you probably choose not to believe me, but it's happened to me about 10 times in my life. I'm painting in this in this little studio in South Korea, surrounded by deep banks of snow, when it was as if a television screen opened in my head. And in, in that television screen, my cousin Tony died. And, you know, you slam it shut. You think, no, 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 don't, don't have thoughts like that. Don't, don't even go there. Don't. And two weeks later, because, of course, there was no way you could be phoned in South Korea, I got a, a blue, my husband handed me a blue airmail letter. And I said, who is it who died? And he wouldn't tell me. And I opened it and read that my cousin Tony had died. His helicopter had crashed in Vietnam the two weeks prior. And um, my heart broke. We love Tony. I love Tony for the rest of my life. We still talk about Tony, the niece I am staying with right now. Before Tony shipped out, I remember sitting on the beach at Balmoral with him in his uniform with this baby on a towel beside us with my sister, Tony playing with my niece, Trina, who is I'm staying with right now. And she's asking about Tony too. We none of us forget Tony. Tony is with us forever. What made you want to leave Korea, Judy? Well, my husband was no longer staying in the house, but staying out with a Korean bar girl. And, um, you know, I'm sorry. We're pretty clear here. There's nothing going on. We're not having a marriage anymore. And I had briefly gone to Japan to have a show of paintings. And I thought, this is for me. I love Japan the minute I saw it. So I came back to Korea and packed. And I had to tell the poor maid that I was leaving. And she did her best to cook me a particularly Australian meal of roast lamb and lemon meringue pie to try to get me to stay. <laughs> but, you know, the food is not going to get you to stay. The marriage was doomed probably from the beginning. We probably should never have married. But now I have my wonderful son and my two delicious granddaughters. <laughs> so one makes one's way through life making mistakes. I mean, it's hard to understand when you fall in love, isn't it? I thought I was in love. It turns out I didn't fall in love until I was in my late 30s. What was it about Japan that you fell in love with? Because it sounds I like that was a place. I fell in love with Japan 
the minute I got off the plane transitioning to South Korea. I could not tell you to this day what it is. Is it like a second life? That's where I was before I entered this life. I'm not sure I believe any of that. There was just everything about Japan fascinated me. It's a culture of reduction. And as an artist, that completely appealed to me. It's clean. The people are charming. The culture is amazing. The food is delicious. I just loved everything about it. What was impossible to understand is World War II. I would often be walking down a street in Tokyo later and completely happy and thinking, all the Japanese around me, they're so nice. They couldn't be nicer to me. World War II, how did that happen? Who, where were the World War II soldiers who committed such dreadful things? Tell me about some of your experiences there, like visiting a traditional house in the midst of winter. So I would sometimes go to a place in Nikko, which was in the mountains, and it was a redwood and paper shoji house that would be surrounded by snow and huge stands of bamboo that would be bowed down by the snow. It was freezing, of course, and you would have the traditional ofuro, the bath, and there it was this wonderful wooden oval that was so old that the, the, the wood was absolutely polished from so many years of use, and you could slide your back around it as if it was satin. So you would be in this little bathroom, and it's steaming hot, and you sit in this steaming tub and have an absolutely wonderful hot bath and come out, dry yourself, put on a cotton yukata, a cotton kimono, and then a heavy woolen kimono over it, and then tubby the socks. And then you go and have this delicious meal. I remember tempered chrysanthemum blossoms, among other things. And then sleeping under so many quilts in this snowy deliciousness. There's that exquisite beauty of, of the everyday in Japanese culture and then the incredibly ritualized art forms like sumo and kabuki theatre. Tell me about going backstage after a kabuki performance. Oh, my God. My friend Juliet, who was at the British Embassy, there was a very small foreign community and I guess they just adopted me, you know, I came from South Korea on this errant Australian with a young son. I had held down three jobs to survive, but they adopted me. And it, one was safe in Tokyo. You could go anywhere and do anything. I could come home at one o'clock at night and be safe. And, of course, I had a babysitter. Um, so Juliet decides she's going to take me to my first kabuki performance. And you have this stage where the kabuki master is. And then along from that stage is this long sort of runway. And I remember the kabuki I watched that night was, and it was Inosuke Ichikawa, who is a fabulous kabuki performer. And he's playing the old woman who lives alone in the forest. And these three unwary travelers come to the forest and they say, can we have a bed for the night? And she's tottering around in this kind of gray kimono. And she says, yes, I'm just going to go into the forest to get wood for the fire. But while I'm gone, do not look in this cupboard. So she <laughs> totters out to get wood for the fire along the runway right next to where I'm seated 
And of course, the travelers look in the cupboard and it's full of human bones because, of course, she is an ogress. And at the point that they opened the cupboard, Anoska Ichikawa was on this runway about three feet away from me and somehow or other by pulling strings, he manages to shed the ash gray kimono and leaped high in the air spitting his tongue out in a long red coil, wearing this amazing brocade kimono, and I about passed out. (laughs) It was extraordinary. And then my friend Juliet took us back. She knew him, so we went to his dressing room during the break, and he exquisitely politely made us face prints of his demon face mask and served us green tea sitting cross-legged on his tatami floor. What an extraordinary experience. (laughs) What were you doing for work to support yourself Um, and your son in Tokyo? Well, I didn't believe in alimony because I'm probably an idiot, but, you know, it was the um, 60s. Alimony was a no-no. Why? Because you wanted to be independent. Yeah, sure. Also, it felt like alimony was not the right thing to do. Like, you know, I can do it myself. I have this awful thing I can do it myself, right? So I got a job at a gallery doing the English correspondence. I taught English to bankers at night, and I illustrated a book of the birds of South Korea. So I was pretty flat out working. So I had a maid called Miki-san who used to pick up my son from the international school that I had managed to get him into. It was a great school. She would pick him up at three, and he would play baseball with the little boy who lived next door. We were in Harajuku then before it was super fashionable. And one day I called up, called up Miki-san. I said, Miki-san, it's time for Tim to come in and have his bath. I'll be home soon. She went out to get him and she came back and she said, he's not there. So for three hours, I did not know where my six-year-old son was in this vast city of Tokyo. The guy next door, a young Irish man, had come out and decided he would go to Shibuya. And he said to Tim, I'm going to Shibuya. Tim said, oh, good. I've never seen Shibuya. I'll come too. How old so was six, Tim? Six. Six. <laughs> Off he went. And I tell you, by the time they came back up the stairs, I screamed so hard at the Irish guy that he ran away and I never <laughs> saw him again. But I just loved it. I loved the fact that I could live in this tiny tatami apartment with four cushions and two futons. And it's enough. You could phone up for noodles and they would come around on a bike with a bamboo carrier holding two blue and white bowls of soba noodles, which I think cost something like, I don't know, a dollar, if even that much. And when you were finished, you would just leave the bowls outside your door and they would pick them up later. I felt safe in Japan and I felt in love with the culture in a way, but I also understood I would never be Japanese, and I would never really be anything but foreign. And I liked that. I liked being gaijin. I liked not fitting in. I think it suits me. What about your mother, Judy? What did she think about oh, this she new totally life? Oh, she totally disapproved. I mean, listen, my parents were the generation where Japan was going to take over Australia. They would never buy a Japanese car. They totally did not understand what I was doing in Japan. Once you're married, you stay married. Well, that was true of their generation, but not true of my generation. Thank God. After coming back to Australia to finalise your divorce, 
you and your son, Tim, headed to New York. Why New York? Well, I had gone to see, I think it's in 67, there'd been this incredible show of American paintings, these great, big, outrageous, I'll do anything, I damn well please paintings. Um, The French ambassador's wife in South Korea had said to me, you'll want to go to Paris. And I thought, no, I don't want the surrealist and the impressionist. I want that. I want that freedom of the canvas that I saw in America. And so I said to her, no, I want to go to New York. And when I was in Japan, because I, you know, was a single mother and I didn't have any money, I wrote to Vogue Australia thinking, how can I make some money? I think I said, I can write you a piece about the young Japanese art scene. And they said, well, we don't take work like that. You write it if you want to. And I thought, I have nothing to lose. So I wrote a Vogue piece and they took it. And so they hired me. So I became the New York correspondent for Vogue Australia. And that was a great way of living in New York and getting around. Once you arrived there, Judy, did it feel like the place that you were meant to be? Yes. I think once a New Yorker, always a New Yorker, as E.B. White says, but (laughs) do not come to New York unless you're prepared to be lucky. You find your feet in New York and you think all of these people who've come from somewhere else looking for their dream, looking to finalize their dream, uh, that's where I found my feet as perhaps a person and an artist. Uh, It was an incredibly, as you point out, how macho the art scene was then. Australia had just bought Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles for two and a bit million, and there was a huge national outcry. And I thought I would call up artists and art dealers, critics, and find out what they think of this. Well, no one would comment. And somehow or other, I got the telephone number of the world's most famous art critic at that time, Clement Greenberg. And I said, I want you to comment. And he said, well, I'll only comment if you come over. So I go over to his apartment. And I remember he had bare feet and was blowing his nose into a large handkerchief. (laughs) And he showed me around his collection, which was extraordinary. And being a young Australian, you know, I said, I like this. I don't like that. And he said, that's why I like Australians. You say what you think. And he said, I'm going to comment for you. I won't comment for anybody else. But for me, he wrote a piece, which we ran as a sidebar in the Vogue article. But Clement Greenberg, in those days, all the male artists and critics and whomever thought you should sleep with them. And so he thought I should sleep with him. And I said, no. And he said, well, you don't know how to behave. And I said, yeah, I do know how to behave. You don't. You, you'd gone to New York partly to be away from family. What surprise did even Bob have in store? Well, my dad, in I think it was 1977, and I really appreciate this about him, he said, this game is getting dirty and I'm getting out. And he left politics, which I think is pretty damn impressive. I think it was Malcolm Fraser, had, who was prime minister at the time, Malcolm decided he's going to call an election, and Dad said, you shouldn't call one now. It's not right. Malcolm said, I'm going to call it anyway. And Dad said, I believe this is correct. I will support you, but the day you win, I resign, and did. So then he was appointed Consul General to New York, and my parents came and lived in New York for a couple of years. We had a lovely time. A lovely time? It was way fun. How did your relationship change by having them nearby? Well, after... The consul generalship, my dad became posted the ambassador to the United States. This is big whoop, as they say. <laughs> and um, we were 
out in a restaurant one day having hamburgers, my mother, my father, my husband, Yale, and I. And I had taught my parents the trick of tearing a tiny piece off a paper straw and blowing it at people, and you could hit them in the face. <laughs> and they would both... They both managed to hit me in the face with a straw at the same time that I was actually holding the squeeze bottle of tomato sauce, ketchup. And I reached over and squirted it right down my father's dress suit. There was a minute's silence when I thought, oh, my God. And then he reached over with his and squirted me back. And after that, it was on. (laughs) The next day, he tipped a plate of pancakes over my head. And I grabbed whatever was squeezable and throwable and chased him. And after that, we made friends with food fights. And one of the joys of my life, I think, was that no matter how we disagreed politically, I could make him laugh. And I would tell him a story until he laughed so hard, he would put his face down on the table and weep. And so, yes, I made friends with both my parents. I loved them dearly. I will say that I never completely managed to decode my mother. But my father, I think it was easier. I'm going to make a pilgrimage to the Baron Joey Lighthouse because every year we used to climb there with my dad. So my son and my two granddaughters and I are going to climb to the Baron Joey Lighthouse. You say you're not quite sure if you've ever decoded your mother, but what qualities of hers do you think you've inherited? Probably ability to talk straight to face up to things, to go forward through difficulty. You have two choices, don't you, with difficulty. You can stand still and cry or you can go forward. And I certainly watched that spine and watched how she conducted herself through her life. And I think we're not so very different. And my niece who read the book said to me, oh, my God, I'm like Mayor too. And I said, yes, we all are. <laughs> as long as you can see it, I think it's all right. You know, Australia has changed a lot over your lifetime, Judy. I wonder if you were a young artist in her 20s now, would you still feel that same pull to leave? Oh, no, Australia now is fascinating. I think there is there is so much room here now and so much interest But in the 60s, you could hit the ceiling very quickly. There was Fred Williams, Charles Blackman, John Percival. Those are three three artists that you pretty much saw. I, I wanted to be pushed to my limits. And to some degree, I still am. I'm going to be doing a show when I get back in September, and then I'm back in the studio. And one of the great joys I had just before I went as I was laying down some grounds in the studio on canvas and I had my two granddaughters with me and I'm going to have to name them Juliet and Charlotte Cotton. And I said, do you want to? Do you want to paint? So I meant paint not with poster paint, but actually paint. And they said, yes. So I laid out pieces of big pieces of canvas for them on the floor, said, you have to take your swimsuits off because you're going to get filthy. (laughs) And they came in and I handed each one at a time a bucket of paint. They said, what do I do? And I said, throw the paint. And now get the brushes, get the squeegees, move it around. So that was a fun thing I got to do with my two granddaughters. Judy, that is just such a wonderful echo of you as a little girl in Oberon, painting your little brother, covering both of you in paint all those decades ago. Yes. Why not get covered in paint? (laughs) It's one of the fun things to do. (laughs) 
<laughs> do you still get covered while you paint now? I do. I come in and have to paint. A current color is blue, apparently. I noticed before I left for Australia that I had blue paint all over my ankles. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you. That was lovely. It was a delightful time. Podcast. Broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Judy Cotton's memoir is Swimming Home. Thanks, as always, to the Conversations team, executive producer Carmel Rooney and our producers Nicola Harrison, Maggie Morris and Alice Moldovan. Thanks also to our sound engineers and my Sterling co-host Richard Feidler. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, everyone. I'm Naz. Hi, Naz. Uh, Last month, I spent $65 on subscription services and... I only watched one show, my own. And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fair enough. Been there. Hi, I'm Nazim Hussain, and in 2021, I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal, and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help. Quick. And by the sounds of it, you do too. So, this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions. Budget out our beauty regimens. Date without debt. And heaps more. New Pineapple Project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod.